All right, everyone, let's get ready to get our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 50. So God's sovereign providential power. So let's just define those terms. God, the being perfect in power, wisdom, and goodness, who is worshipped as both creator and ruler of the universe. This is coming out of Merriam-Webster. Sovereign one who exercises a supreme authority within, they say, a limited sphere. I've added unlimited sphere. Providential God conceived as the power sustaining and guiding human history. Again, that's a secular dictionary definition conceived. We would say God, the power sustaining and guiding human destiny. So let me remind you, last week we buried Jacob. It was an incredible funeral. He was embalmed. There was quite the entourage that went up to the burial place. And now life continues or the process of grieving continues. And here we are now in chapter 50, verse 15, 15, and we are almost done. We've got one more sermon, verses 20 through 26 next week, and then we say goodbye to the book of Genesis and start in the book of John. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us. Pay back all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. So we're not really sure whether that's true or not. There's no evidence in scripture that a command was given like this. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please Forgive the transgression of your servants of God, your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Rhetorical question. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it to good, meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Father, be with us this morning as we get into your word and help us to really make the most of this time, these 40 minutes that we have to dedicate ourselves to your word and all that it says in Jesus' name, amen. So again, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay him back. So we're going to deal with this issue. What about what we did to him before? What about all the crimes that we did to them? We're not sure whether their father gave an actual command. Scripture doesn't say this. It could be that they're lying or it could be that the scripture didn't record this. Say to him, please forgive the transgression of your brothers, the sin and the evil. So three good words. And notice, please, they're not calling this a mistake. And the reason they're not calling it a mistake is because it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake to assault your brother. It's not a mistake to throw him in a pit, to leave him to die. It's not a mistake to sell him to human traffickers. Church, we're in a mess because we keep calling sin mistakes. It's not. It's sin. We need to call it what it is, a transgression of God's law, a trespass of God's law. This is evil. 
Bible says the wages of a mistake is death. No, that's right. No, it doesn't say that. All right, it's a mistake to back into somebody in the parking lot. That's a mistake, okay? We're dealing with sin. And we, and we do ourselves a massive injustice when we don't call sin what it is. Let's be clear. Christ didn't die for mistakes. Christ died for sin. The wages of sin is death, okay? Colossians 2.13 says that we were dead in our trespasses and our uncircumcision of our heart. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, a trespasser, you don't need a savior. And therefore, you don't run to get your savior. You don't go to him to have your debt canceled. You don't have anything that he would nail to the cross because you make mistakes, not sin. So let's remind ourselves what happened. They assaulted him when he went to visit them, ripped his coat off of him, threw him in a pit. Then they removed him from a pit. Now, I just want you to imagine for yourself for just a moment that you were thrown in that pit and left to die. And 24 hours went and you, I can't get out. I'm going to die in this pit. Then you look up and see your brothers getting you out of there. And you're thinking, glory, hallelujah. They came to their senses. I'm going to be fine only to move you and have you sold into slavery. You talk about an emotional roller coaster. And let's face it, church, we can't even relate to this. We got our cell phones. We'll call 911. Somebody will rescue us. He literally has no hope. None. This is horrific. Then they shed blood and convinced the father that Joseph's dead. And if Joseph's dead, there's nothing for father to do. He doesn't go looking for him. He doesn't send an entourage to find him. He's dead. And now they have the nerve to expect to be forgiven of this. They want him to forgive him. Please forgive the transgression of your servants. So let's ask ourselves, what does biblical forgiveness look like? So let, let's, number one, say what it doesn't look like. It, it, does, it, is, it is not, it's not saying that what you did to me is okay. Nor is it saying you can do it again. That's not what it's saying. So people seem to think that because I forgive you of your sin, that means it's okay for you to sin against me. That's not what we're saying. Nor are we saying do it again and again and again. That's not what we're saying. And it does not say you can do it again, but it does say that when you do it again, I will forgive you. And it does not mean the memory of the sin goes away. It doesn't automatically go away. But we know that with God, it does. For example, Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know all me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So what, what do I do with that personally, Pastor? How do I process that? Well, I want to model that. I want to model the green. I want to model the aqua blue. I want to somehow get to the point where I do forgive and I do my very best to forget. I want, I want to push it back. I, I want to let it go. I know that I'm not God. It's going to be hard for me to do that. But if God does that with my sin, I need to do it as well. I mean, that's just the reality. Matthew 18, Peter says to him, how often, Lord, how often will 
my brother sinned against me, my sister sinned against me, my wife sinned against me, my son sinned against me, and I forgive him. Seven, Lord, seven seems to be, a, like that's a reasonable number. Seven, Lord, no. And then he seems to hint at this, but 77 times? Some say seven times, 70, 490. Clearly, they all understood innumerable times. Now, let's own the fact that this is really hard. Let's just own that. Let's just all own up to the idea that letting go like this is super, super difficult. But it's the biblical expectation. Webster gives us some pretty good definitions here. It says to give up resentment for or claim to requital for is to grant relief from payment of. It's to cease to feel resentment against one another. It's a full pardon. This is good. This is good Good definitions. This is what we are trying to work towards. If we have a relationship and we've been good friends and you sin against me, I'm not supposed to hold a grudge. I'm supposed to let this thing go. I'm not supposed to let this continue to fester and interfere with our relationship one with another. So we're looking at verse 17 and I showed you this chart last week where Joseph is just one weeping patriarch and in 17, he's weeping again. And I, I need you to kind of imagine this. I, I put Joseph up in some type of an elevated position. I know that he's above them because they're on their knees, groveling before him, asking for forgiveness. And he's weeping. Why is he weeping? Turn back to chapter 45. Turn back to chapter 45. And let me remind you, why he is weeping. 45 is the chapter where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. This is where he comes clean as to who he is. They've they've had the ultimate reconciliation. And in verse 3, he says, I am Joseph. There's an explanation mark in your text. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said it again. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before to preserve your life. There's a famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there's neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before to preserve you, a remnant on the earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry up, go get my father. Say to him, come. So that's what they've already had. Now, how much time is between chapter 45 and 50? How much time is between chapter 45 and 50? 17 years. That's correct. 17 years. So I want you to imagine something. I want you to get into this. You've had a family ought, and I mean a big family ought, a big falling out. But you were reconciled, 
And you got it clean. You got it right. You got it clear. I mean, everything was good. 17 years go by and nobody's talked about this. You thought it was done. They thought it was done. It was done. And now they bring it back up. Like, are you kidding me? This is settled. We dealt with this in chapter 45. Why are we bringing this back up? I want to know why he's weeping. He's weeping because he had already forgiven them. This was a done deal. He told them, don't be angry with yourselves. This was all God's plan. We got this set. And now you want to open that back up again? We got we to bring all that up and deal with it all over again? The man is bawling in front of them because he thought that they had this settled. And it's not. 17 years. Do you see them on the ground? Do you see them saying, we are your servants? Can you imagine this? Are you allowing yourself to see this? Judah's there. Reuben's there. Simeon's there. Benjamin's there. They're all on their knees. It's incredible how pitiful this is. So now look at verse 19 because it's utterly incredible. Just get your pen out. Get ready. Underline in there because this is his retort. They say on their knees, we are your servants. And he responds in verse 19, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Yes, you said technically he is. Yes, technically he is. But Joseph has a complete understanding of who he is. And he's not God. He's a human being. He's not God. So Joseph believes there's a God and he knows he's not in God's place. So what are the implications of this? Number one, he must forgive. He is obligated to forgive. He does not have the right to say, your sins are not forgiven. Only God can say that. He can't say that. He's not in the place of God. Number two, he cannot pay back the evil done to him. Why not? Scripture says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. Paul is saying that vengeance belongs to the Lord. God owns vengeance. Now, we've got to get this, church. When we decide that we're going to repay evil, and this is simple stuff like nobody talks to me like that. You don't talk to me like that. I don't know who you think you are, but nobody talks to me like that. The moment those words come out of your mouth, those kind of words, what you're saying is, I'm in the place of God. That's what you're doing. You're going, I'm going to heaven. I'm getting vengeance and I'm bringing it down to earth. I'm taking vengeance away from God because God says vengeance is whose? It's his, mine. And we literally wrestle vengeance out of God's hands and say, I'll take care of this. I'll repay. You don't do that to me. You don't back into my car. You don't cut me off on the road. Don't you dare cut. When I'm driving, you get out of my way. You don't cut me off. You don't take my parking spot. 
I found that thing on sale before you did. Give that to me right now. See, I know that there's a slim chance that anyone's going to kill someone this week. Just doesn't normally happen at Brian. It's rare that we have a murder between Sunday to Sunday. Unless we're talking about the way we talk to people. Unless we're talking about the way we appropriate the position of God. Elevate ourselves to a position of judgment. Decide who will forgive and who we won't forgive. Decide what we'll forgive and what we won't forgive. We'll decide what sins are bad and which ones aren't. Joseph clearly has a right understanding of who he is. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always, always, what part of always don't we understand? Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I mean, come on, let's face it, church. This means I'm working hard every single day to say, is this good? Is this a good thing that I'm doing right now? And if it's not a good thing, I need to change it until it qualifies as a good thing. So number one, he must forgive. Number two, he can't repay. Number three, he's not in the place of God. And every translation uses that language, in the place of God, in the place of God, in God's place. Everybody is consistent with that. So they all agree that this is good language. So what is meant by in the place of God? Well, Joseph doesn't dare say, am I God? He, he can't say that. That would just be too blasphemy for a Hebrew to even dare say that. So instead he says the place of God. This is the way of, of minimizing what he's saying. He, he, he can't be on the edge of blasphemy. Am I God? So he says, in the place of God, the elevated position of God, am I the sovereign? Am I the king? Am I in the position of authority over you like this? Jacob used the same language previously in chapter 30. This was when Rachel was asking about why she can't get pregnant. And Jacob just burst out angrily with, am I in the place of God who's withheld the fruit from your womb? In other words, there are only things that God has the power and I don't have that power. I'm not in that position. And it would do us all well to remind ourselves of that. Joseph has a sound understanding as to his place and God's place and they are not the same. They are not the same. So this sets the conditions for one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. If you don't have this verse underlined, you need to go ahead and do that at this time. If you don't have this location memorized as the truth is contained here, then you need to commit it to memory. I'm not saying you have to have every word memorized, but you clearly need to know the general idea and you could underline this phrase, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good because this, this becomes the precursor of what God does. And church, this is hard. This is really hard. Like, I have been wrestling with, why aren't you answering my prayers in Ukraine? I mean, how long, oh Lord? Because I, I can just tell you that I have daily and sometimes multiple times a day prayed that the war in Ukraine would come to an end. It bothers me immensely. I am so burdened by the fact that the Western world is turning a blind eye 
to the entire destruction of a nation. And I'm asking God to hear and answer these prayers. I mean, can we agree that it's evil what's being done in Ukraine? Hypersonic missiles. That means you don't even hear them coming. They travel faster than sound. Wrap your brain around that. We hear everything. When something travels faster than sound, it's difficult to comprehend it. So when he says, you meant evil against me, we're talking about that which is morally reprehensible. And we need to own the fact that the problem of evil is a problem. We cannot stick our heads in the sand and pretend like it's not a problem when it is a problem. Theologically, the problem of evil is a problem. This is a full-on declarative statement concerning their culpability and intent. You meant evil against me. You did. This is your evil. You own this evil. What God did with it doesn't mitigate in any way what they did. It was evil. The fact that God takes it and turns it into good doesn't mitigate the evil that it was. Now, church, we're Bereans. This means that we take the word of God very seriously. This means that we seek to apply the biblical truths in the text in a legitimate way. And the problem of evil is a problem. And in some way, we have to reconcile the idea, and this is difficult to even say. These are the hard things that we talk about in this church that no one else wants to talk about. But we would not know God's power to destroy and overcome and manipulate evil were it not for evil. Let me say it like this to make it plainer. You walk into a weightlifting facility. I mean, this is benches everywhere. And this is a weightlifting facility, but there are no weights there. And you I'm strong. Man, I... <laughs> but there's nothing there to lift. There's nothing to lift. How will you demonstrate your strength? How will you prove that you're strong? There's nothing there to lift. This is a weightlifting facility. There are benches there. These are, that's a bench right there. Leg press machines, you know, where you rock it and all that. But there are no weights. There, there's no weights whatsoever. How can you demonstrate your power to lift if there are no weights? Now, what's your parallel? What are you trying to get us to think about? Evil is the weight that God uses. I told you we don't like that. I don't even like saying it. I would rather just crawl under the pew and pretend like I didn't say it. 
Because it hurts my head to think about it. I mean, we're dealing with the toughest questions that churches don't deal with. What is the origin of sin? Why did God permit it into the Garden of Eden? Why didn't he just crush it right then and there? He could have crushed it at that moment like a cockroach right there. Sin, stomp, eliminated, done. But he didn't. Instead, this is hard stuff. Okay? There's plenty of soft preachers out there that you can go listen to and get your little devotional and feel good. God let that cockroach become a monster. Because anybody can stop a cockroach. But you let that thing get out of control until you're running from it. And now you need a God to stop it. This is Tyree Nichols. This is Tyree Nichols of Memphis, Tennessee. This is Tyree Nichols, the FedEx worker. This is your son. This is your son that you were expecting to have Sunday dinner with. This is your son that you love. This is your son that was going to give you grandchildren. This is the son that might have given you great-grandchildren. This is the son that you had all the dreams and aspirations for. And you get that dreaded phone call that your son's in the hospital. He's on life support. He's fighting for his life. In one moment of time, your entire life is shipwrecked. This is the nightmare of every parent in this room. You're here for a wedding shower, right? And your son, is this your firstborn? You're crazy about him. You love him. You get ready to become husband and eventually father and son-in-law right there. And it's glorious. And I just want you to imagine that all of a sudden he's beaten. Five individuals jump him and beat the living daylights out of him to the point where he's fighting. My point to you this morning is evil is all around us. And at any given moment, our entire lives could be in a nightmare of evil, in a tailspin of evil. You're not exempt. I'm not exempt. We literally live where tomorrow could be my day of destiny on this. Now, I know I'm being harsh this morning, but this is a tough subject. Church, I need to know that my God has the power to take evil and do something with it. I don't want to worship. I don't want to pray to. I don't want to bow before. I don't want to tithe a mamby-pamby God that can't do something with evil. Because when you're in that nightmare right there, you need to know that God can do something with even that. And I'm not saying that he promises you that you're going to see how he does something with it. I'm just telling you that according to Romans 8, 38, 28 rather, he says, I'll make it good. 
And he doesn't tell you what good looks like, and he tells you he doesn't know how it's going to be good, and he doesn't tell you when it's going to be good. He just tells you, this is what I do. And when you're in that hole, in that crisis, in that tailspin of evil, you need a big God. A big God. You need to know that God takes what they had in mind for evil and can turn it to good. Joseph says that God did all this to keep people alive. To keep people alive. So I ask you this morning, if leaving someone for dead but not killing them, but instead selling them to slavery is evil, what would you call conspiring to have someone crucified? And by the way, what would you call it if you conspired and lied to have a man crucified? So, so you, had a, you had a man who did never committed a crime and you conspired and lied about him. And wait a minute, what would you call it if the man was the son of God? What if you conspired against the Son of God? What if he was the long-awaited Messiah of Daniel 7, Daniel 9? What if he was the Genesis 3.15 Messiah and he never committed a crime and he was innocent in it and they were lying about him and they were conspiring against him and they were going to put him to death? Would that be evil? What would you call it if one of his best friends betrayed him? And what would you call it if the people who conspired about him were the same nation, same ethnicity, same people group? And what would you call it if they flogged him before they crucified him? Would you call it evil? Let me give you some parallel ideas. What if God had ordained, what if God had ordained one man to discover the cure for cancer and we put him to death? What if there was one man destined to broker the peace deal in the Middle East that would settle all animosities for all time and instead of embracing him, we put him to death? I'm telling you right now, church, we're guilty of taking for granted what Jesus accomplished. What if they hung you completely naked for all to see? I mean, your junk just blowing in the wind. That's a nightmare, man. You can't really think of anything more humiliating. Just hanging there. And what if people walked by and were mocking you? What if they're telling you stuff like, you healed the blind, you made the deaf to hear, you made the lame to walk, can't you do something for yourself? Ha, ha, ha. I'm trying to show you that what they did to Joseph was nothing compared to what they did to Christ. I'm trying to show you that what they did in Genesis 50, 20 was a microcosm of the macro. I'm trying to show you that Genesis 50, 20 was a foreshadowing. It was a precursor. It was God saying, this is what I do. And by the way, I'm really good at it. 
What if they left you on the cross to die when they could have got you off and saved your life? But instead, they just left you hanging there as you went through this agonizing death where every single time you got your breath piercing all pain through you, you sagged again until you were suffocating. Then you had to pull your body up and do it all over again. And you went through this vicious cycle of pain, agony, pain, agony, pain, agony, until finally you burst out and said, it is finished. What do we call that evil? Church, we need to own the fact that the greatest evil ever perpetrated by humanity when the Jews and the Romans conspired to crucify the Son of God sent by the Father to be king that was supposed to make all things right. He was the long-awaited Messiah. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 23, please. I don't have a slide for this, so you're going to need to turn there. Peter gives us some incredible language that is so helpful, so theologically sound, so instructive. We need to own this kind of language. We need to own our God who does this. We don't have to understand it, but we need to own who he is. This is what my God does. This is the God I'm praying to. This is the God I can trust in. This is the God who's going to get me through the nightmare of evil. Peter in Jerusalem at the feast of the Pentecost in front of about 3,000 Jews at least says these words, this Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, there's some sovereignty for you right there. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says, you crucified and killed. You crucified and killed. So next to this verse, I want you to write down Genesis 50, 20 in the margin of your Bible so you won't forget the connection point here. That it is the same thing. God takes what humanity meant for evil and turns it into good. Let me remind you, this is not the first time they heard this. In chapter uh, 45, he uses this language, 45.5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You sold me here. God sent me. Which is it? It is. It is. That's exactly right. It is. And good theologians, biblical theologians, will take these two things and hold them in tension. They'll grab these two things. You meant it for evil. You meant it. You sold me. God sent me. And they'll take these two things and they'll say, I can't separate them. Scripture doesn't let me separate them. I'm not allowed to pull them apart. One doesn't mitigate the other. One doesn't trump the other. Both are held as tension with each other. This is good thinking. This is the way we're supposed to think. 
Tyree Nichols' mom and dad should expect justice. There are five people that are guilty of evil. They should go after them with a passion while simultaneously holding to the biblical truth that God can do something good with this. I pray you never need this truth like they need it. But it could be that someday you will need it. And when you do, it'll be there ready for you to grab a hold of and go to Genesis 50, 20 and say, this is my truth and I'm going to use it to get through this nightmare. Nothing we say mitigates the culpability. Nothing whatsoever we say mitigates the culpability. Nothing. Yet at the same time, we are simultaneously holding to an absolute confidence that what my God does, it takes what Satan meant for evil and he turns it into a very good thing. And I'm counting on him to do that. Dave Fernia was a pastor on staff when I was just a private here in this church. 1988, Dave Fernia, Sergeant Major, retired from Special Forces, had all the badges that some of you guys, well, you'll never get them. You weren't a man like him. Um, he was a, golly, Dave Fernia was a man's man. Did you know what I mean? Just get out of the way. Make a whole kind of a guy, you know. What a testimony he had. Grew up in church. Grew up in the Lord. Solid, faithful guy. Until his two-year-old son wandered in the backyard, fell into a sinkhole, and drowned to death. Marcus is a nightmare. And he wanted to know the question that I would want to know and the question you would want to know and the hard question, how does a good God let my two-year-old drown in a sinkhole? And Dave Furnius spent his entire military career wrestling with that very question in a state of drunkenness when he wasn't sober doing his military job. And he literally went from sober to drunk, sober to drunk, sober to drunk. Until God finally delivered him out of it and it became an abiding testimony for his incredible ministry for the rest of his life. I share this with you this morning because evil is everywhere, church. Evil is around us. We live in an evil world. We live in a fallen world. And if we don't have bedrock truths that ground who we are, we're not going to be ready to fight the monster of evil. This is hard stuff. It's not easy. You've been trying to get pregnant for 10 years. You've done everything, in vitro and all of it. You've spent thousands and thousands of dollars trying to get pregnant. You get three months into pregnancy, you've got your test, and then there's a miscarriage, and you're like, why, God? You don't need to bury these things. It's okay to talk about them in the church. It's okay to have conversations about them in the church. We don't need to pretend like we're the only one asking this hard question. We need to do life together. 
We need to be transparent and honest with one another. It's okay to, this is a safe zone right here. This is where you ask your hard questions. Don't go to Google. Google doesn't have the answer. Do it in the community of believers. Do it here. Be real. Be transparent. I'm struggling right now with a good God. Say it out loud. It's okay. We're not here to pacify ourselves, placate ourselves with plastic faces. We need to come into the body of Christ and be real. Go to Scripture. Examine hard truths. Deal with the reality of living in a fallen world. Cling to the good knowledge that what our God does is he takes what's meant for evil and turns it into good. And we don't know how he does it, when he does it, in any way, shape, or form. But we trust that he can do it, Drew. My goodness, church. What is the point of the word of God if it doesn't ground our very thinking? If it doesn't guide how we do life, it's not a storybook. It is the bedrock of who we are. We need it. Satan, his demons, his sons, his daughters collectively made every effort to stop the Son of Man from accomplishing the will of his father, but nothing could stop Christ from finishing the work he was sent to do. Please, church, you've got to get this. Please understand this morning that when the brothers threw him in the pit, sold him into slavery, they meant that for evil. God somehow, and I don't have any doubt how he does this, I'm just going to use a pitiful illustration, has this amazing ability, and I'm going to use a bad word right now, looks, God doesn't need to look anywhere because he's omnipotent, so looks is not a great word, but he can look and see a famine coming, he can see Satan's efforts to eliminate Israel, he knows that Jesus must be born of Judah, must be born of um, Jacob must be born of Isaac, must be born of Abraham, must be born of Shem, must be born of Noah, must be born of Seth, must be born of Adam. And so he says, I need to preposition Joseph down here and start stockpiling food because you're not going to eliminate the people that produce the Messiah. And between Genesis 50, verse 20, all the way into the Gospels is a tracing of Satan trying to eliminate the Messiah. And God says, try again. The temptation of Christ is an example. And it literally goes on and on and on. And God says, you're not more powerful than me. Okay? We need this foundational truth, church. Might not need it this afternoon when you go have a nice dinner in a nice home and enjoy a wonderful afternoon. But tomorrow your life could be in a tailspin with one phone call. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord God Almighty, help us to see the glorious truth that you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. 
Ground us, O God, in the truth that's in this text. May we, O God, frame our understanding of the problem of evil from the truth that you own it and that you use it for your glory in a ways that is beyond our wildest comprehension. In Jesus' name, amen.